0: amen thanks brother Al so who's the goat come on give me some names who's the goat I'm not talking about the uh, four hoofed you know animal that goes ah, ah." you know what the goat is greatest of all time okay so in basketball some people say michael jordan debates will kick up lebron james whatever tiger woods for golf maybe i knew somebody was going to say that tom okay let's move on to the sermon here um tom brady what's that ah serena williams there we go yep somebody else part star okay (laughs) Hey, I'll take him. Anybody but Tom Brady. Now, okay. So, greatest of all time. Okay, we talk about greatness in our culture. Um, If you were to stop and think, who's the greatest person you've ever known? Who comes to mind? You don't have to yell at the names now. And definitely not if it's Tom Brady. Um, So, who's the greatest person you've ever known? And what was it about them that made them great? Just think about it. And then, have you ever dreamed of greatness? Do you dream of greatness? Probably if you're older, you've like laid that thing down. It's too late for me. But maybe if you're younger. So... Athletic greatness, musical greatness, the golden buzzer, confetti coming down, (laughs) business greatness, maybe you want to be a great author, maybe you wanted to write the next Harry Potter series or something. So what are those dreams? What were those dreams if they've been dashed on the rocks of reality? over too many years of life. How are those dreams going? How are you doing with how those dreams are going? A lot to think about here, okay? But certainly greatness and how it's defined, what it is, how to pursue it, is front and center in our text this morning in Mark 9, okay? So if you want to turn there, the passage that Al read is a helpful compliment To Mark 9, we are studying through the gospel according to Mark, taking it kind of a chunk at a time, and we are finishing up chapter 9 this morning, at least that's the plan. Um, So if you're not there already, you can turn to page 845 in the Pew Bible, or I think, eh, probably need to do that, because I don't think the text is going to be up on the screen. Um, And it'll be good, because you can follow along this way, maybe a little bit easier So Mark chapter 9, we'll read the passage, verses 30 to 50, and then we'll walk through it, take it apart, and apply it. So Mark chapter 9, verse 30, they went on, Jesus and his disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. You know, the crowds oftentimes kept them from actually being able to have time like this. And so he would retreat sometimes to focus on teaching the disciples. So he's teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But the disciples did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And they weren't talking about basketball. They were talking about themselves, who's the greatest disciple among us. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John, the disciple, soon to be apostle, said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, so first point, verses 30 and 31, the way to the cross. Okay, so they went on from there. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know. He's teaching his disciples, and he's making this prediction of his coming suffering and death. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. So the first clear prediction of his death came back in chapter 8, verse 31. You can just look back there. He began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, and he said it plainly and Peter was like uh-uh and he rebuked Jesus and then here's the second and they still don't understand but this time they don't ask maybe they, they figure well Peter spoke up and he got rebuked and called Satan so maybe we should just keep our mouths shut there's a third prediction in chapter 10 we'll look at it in weeks to come chapter 10 verses 33 and 34 where Jesus again says he's going to suffer and die. And again there's misunderstanding. So there's a clear pattern. It's kind of important to the structure of these chapters, the end of chapter 8 and chapters 9 and 10. After each prediction, the disciples are shown to just not get it. Um. So Jesus is educating them, re-educating them on the nature of his mission and then what that means for them. So they need to know who he is, king and cross, right? So that's the title of the series, king and cross. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this that's forgiving sins? Who is this? So Jesus' identity and also his mission. They expect a political military liberator but he's coming instead to die for their sins they need liberated not from roman oppression they need liberated from their sins from the slavery to sin so jesus is trying to teach them and help them understand who he is why he came and what that means for them because if if they think oh political military liberator when he wins we're going to reign and rule we're going to be at his right and left hand we're going to have the power we're going to be great But if his mission is to suffer and die, then that shapes what it means for them to follow him. And they need to understand that. So this is not just slight adjustment here and there. This is like completely overhauling their understanding. The kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom and what it means to be a part of that kingdom is almost the opposite of what they expect and the opposite of what they want. So, that's the prediction, point number one. Point number two, selfish ambition. So they are filled with selfish ambition at this point. Jesus' way is the opposite of that. He's heading to the cross to suffer and die for us, for our sins. And what are they doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest. So second point, selfish ambition, verses 32 and 30 to 34. They didn't understand the saying. They were afraid to ask. Again, they're understanding of the Messiah is totally different. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, because they're embarrassed. Like, they don't want to admit what they were talking about. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So what a contrast. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. And they're like, I'm better than you. Like, no, he likes me better. Like, no, 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 The disciples want power, they want status, they want glory, they want honor, they want greatness. Jesus is on his way to die in weakness and shame, despised, rejected, humiliated, and they're jockeying for positions of power. Jesus has yielded up his power and privilege and prerogative, like Al read from Philippians 2, this the son of God he's equal with God and he was willing to enter into our dark humanity and take on flesh and blood so that he could live the life that we've failed to live and die the death that we deserve to die in our place to save us like <laughs> that's incredible humiliation and condescension that he would do that for us And he's even do it, doing it for these disciples who are jockeying for position. So this contrast is set up here right off the bat over this whole section. The way of Jesus is upside down from the way of the world. Jesus is not pursuing his power and privilege. He's using his power to serve others. He's suffering for others to heal and set them free. He's not self-seeking. He's not pursuing recognition in the world's eyes, but service, others' orientation. So following Jesus then means an overhaul of our ambitions. The disciples have selfish ambition. You and I, by nature, we all have selfish ambitions. And we need an overhaul of our ambitions, our desires, and the shape of our lives. So third point, Christian ambition. Verse 35, this is really like the heartbeat of this passage. And the stuff that follows is an unpacking of it, okay? Even if it's a little confusing, hopefully that'll be clear before we're done how this all relates. But this point, point number three, is the heartbeat of this section. Christian ambition is what Jesus is teaching them. And he sat down, rabbis would oftentimes sit down to teach back then, And called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So first off, I think it's just worth stopping and seeing. You know, if if you see, I'm going to die. That's not going to happen. Get behind me, Satan. Um, I'm going to die. I'm better than you are. Like, what would you do? You'd be like, what's wrong with you? Jesus is more patient than we are oblivious. He's still teaching them. I mean, it seems these guys deserve the backhand. The two by four to the head maybe is what they need. And he's sitting down patiently and teaching them again. If anyone wants that word that's translated would, it's the desire word, okay? If anyone desires to be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. So if you want to be first, you want to lead. If you want to be first, you want to be great. And Jesus is redefining both leadership and greatness. So listen to me here. To follow Jesus' servanthood is not a temporary concession on our way to eternal kingdom greatness that then is defined in the way that we define it in our world okay we need a permanent desire overhaul not a temporary exchange here's what I mean by this like just let me give you a for instance in Islam there's a pretty strict sexual ethic right modesty required of women gender segregation at beaches you know Muslim countries chastity strictly enforced we won't get into concubinage Okay? And yet, one of the main blessings of heaven, at least if you are a faithful Muslim male, is that you will receive a harem of virgins. So you see how the denial of sexual desire is temporary, and then you're going to be able to go nuts forever. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Okay, deny yourself for a little while now and then later on you can leave that servanthood thing behind and you can, no. Servanthood is not merely the path to greatness. It is true greatness. God himself is why this is true. He is the standard of greatness. God is the goat. Like period, full stop, no argument, okay? And how is his greatness revealed? Servanthood by God is not a merely temporary choice. Within the Trinity, and this is mind-blogging, we're not gonna go into this this morning, but there's been mutual, servant-hearted, self-love and giving forever. And God didn't make the world and us out of need Out of loneliness, he was this overflowing fountain and he wanted to share himself, his joy, his life, his love with us. He's been a servant from the beginning, providing for his people. So Old Testament, who's ever heard of a God like you who works for those who wait for him? All the gods of the nations, you've got to make sure you keep them happy and, you know, do your rain dance and all that kind of stuff. And just make sure you stay on their good side because they're kind of moody, you know. And if you don't keep them happy, then they're not going to bless you and give you good crops. This God is, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. I don't need anything. You need me. So let me serve you. Let me help you and Jesus now is the visible image of the invisible God to see him is to see the father so you know that god is never going to lord it over his people for all eternity i wouldn't believe this if it wasn't in the bible but luke 12:37 says this blessed are those servants who find the master whom the master finds awake when he comes truly i say to you he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. It's a parable about the future, about the return of Christ. God is gonna serve his people. I mean, he's the sovereign servant, so it's not like we order him around like a genie, but he doesn't need anything. It's all from him and through him and to him and he's gonna, he's gonna, it's gonna be his delight to serve his servants forever. Amen. Like, are you kidding me? So the cross is not a change in divine strategy temporarily. The cross has been plan A from before the foundation of the world. And that strategy is the glory of God. Him revealing his humble, like, giving, sacrificial, other-centered heart in the most beautiful and yet ugly, humiliating way. So it is the eternal glory of God that we see at the incarnation, at the crucifixion. True greatness is God's humble holiness. He is the goat and he is the lowest servant. Nobody else like stoops as far as God does. Not even close. And if we are to be truly great, we will become humble servants. Not just merely an imitation because we don't have the grace and strength to do that. We need to be remade from within so Jesus had to die for us first so that we could have new hearts. Like he fills us up. He serves us on the cross. And when we see our need, I can't, I can't atone for my own sin. I can't like do good deeds to outweigh and kind of take care of the bad. Like I need forgiven. I need cleansed. I need reconciled to God. I need mercy. I need grace. I need a gift. So he died for us first, and then with a new heart, new desires, then by his grace, we follow his example as servants. And so you see how we then reflect the glory of God, not just as image bearers created, but recreated into the image of Christ, the one who gave everything, the ultimate servant which is who God is. Only happens by the power of the gospel, but when the gospel comes home, this is what happens. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like. This is the way of the cross. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and he's gonna die so that we are enabled Like the desires are new. The ambitions are new. The worldly ambitions we set aside, we actually die to those. And new desires, new ambitions are awakened, created, so that we want to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. So, I mean, I think we know this, right? We know that the way of the world, first and great, it's all wrong, right? The world seeks to use power for personal glory and advantage? It's the opposite in the kingdom. So think about what this means. What does this mean for you? If you're a follower of Jesus, what does this mean for you? Like in your ministry involvements, whether it's with kids or whatever, teaching, whatever it is, why do you do what you do? How do you do what you do? It shapes that. It needs to shape that. Leaders, Christian leaders, serve. They don't use their position for selfish gain, even if it's for people to look up to them. And how does that shape the behind the scenes people? The humblest servants are not second class. Oh no, they're living out kingdom of God, Christ like greatness. because of how they're giving humbly in service. Think about what this means for Christian employers if you're one of those. Think about what this means for Christian employees and how you treat your clients or your coworkers or relate to your boss. Husbands and wives, think of what this means for marriage. Mothers and fathers, think of what it means for parenthood children. Think of what it means for how you interact with your siblings or peers or teachers. So listen, just think about this for a few more minutes. The greater the leader, the greater the power and the benefits, typically, right? And with that power, you can either aim at serving yourself or serving others. So Jesus has all the power and he's plowing it into us for our Best interest. So power and influence and resources are not given so that we can serve ourselves. The more power that we can pour and funnel and put into serving the best interest of others. That's characteristic of kingdom servanthood. So greater power is not given you so that you can have greater benefits to selfishly use. Because I think sometimes what we can do is we really want our, we want to have our cake and eat it too. And we say, you know, more greatness, more power, more money, more, more resources, and I'll give more. We kind of justify our subtly worldly shaped ambitions. Listen, it's not be selfishly ambitious as long as you do enough pro bono work as well. It's not be cutthroat in your business but be sure to give a good chunk to charity and to serve the underprivileged. It's servanthood is the nature of all of your work in ministry as a Christian. So listen, like in business, there are companies that really aim at the good of their clients, and there are companies that aim at the good of their clients as a business strategy to get what they really want, more money and bigger market share, right? And listen, listen, every company on earth is imperfect and whatever you may not be able to change your company ethos but your motivation and manner can change and can influence your little corner of your office world so so we've got to think about the implications of the way of the cross characterizing us as Jesus's followers in all the different spheres of life why do you want to make more money if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Why do you want that promotion? If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Why do you want a better job? Why do you want a nicer car or a nicer house? Why do you want to be more successful? I remember when I first came to Bethel 13 years ago, whatever, and, you know, first time to be a senior pastor. I don't know what I'm doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. Um, I ran across this blog post by Kevin DeYoung. He had written... After five years as a, as a senior pastor of the church he was serving at the time, and I still remember one of the points of, of advice that he gave Don't pray for success until you don't want it anymore. I'll give you a second. It, it takes a second. Don't pray for success until you don't want it anymore. Now, listen, might you be successful in ministry or in business? If you're genuinely seeking to serve people, serve your clients, serve the folks that you're called to minister to, of course, and that's great, that's fine. But in the one case, the good of the people you serve is the goal, and in the other case, the worldly version, sometimes it's baptized, is the good of your clientele as a means to a greater goal, your own kingdom if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So we need to be shaped by Christian ambition, not worldly ambition, and then kind of baptize it. So like I said, this is a heartbeat of the section, and then what follows is application of this central principle. But again, hear the echo. There are three sayings of Jesus that are central at the end of 8, 9, 10. So just listen to these. I think they'll be up on the screen here. Listen to the repeated language. Mark 8. He calls the disciples. After he says, I'm going to die. If anyone would, wishes, desires, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then, there's this one. But then in chapter 10, listen to similar language again. Beginning in verse 42, Jesus called them to him. His disciples said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, rulers of the nations, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would, wishes, desires to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. So listen, Jesus is the greatest And he's not commanding us to do anything he's unwilling to do. Oh no, he's doing it. He is the cornerstone that sets the square on the building of this house of otherworldly humility and service and love that is the church. Because if you go a little further in Mark, you enter a little garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is sweating drops of blood And he's praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's looking, the wrath of God that we deserve, in the face. And then he says, not what I will, but your will be done. I want my desire right now, even in this moment, as I'm going to go through the ultimate suffering, to be in line with your will. Christian ambition, not worldly ambition. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is calling us to reject our natural inclinations towards self-glory and selfish ambition. And listen, get ambitious for the good of others. Don't just put off the selfish ambition. Let's get some new ambition. you can put your public relations completely in Jesus' hands. Like, cast off the burden of selfish ambition. We don't have to be great in the world's eyes or impressive or successful. We need to be served by Jesus. We need his grace and help so that we can serve others with the grace and love and truth and compassion and care of Jesus I mean, don't you want to really believe this? I mean, this is not easy to really embrace and live out. We're going to need to wrestle with this for the rest of our lives. But what if we really, like, you know what? I want this. If you're ambitious for whatever other kind of success, you go after it. You make a business plan. You, make a, you have a strategic plan. What if we had some holy ambition for humility, humility, and Christ-like service. Okay, I want to know what this should look like in my home. I want to know what it should look like in the church, in, in my office, in my job, in my neighborhood. So we can pray about that, and we can also ask each other and talk to each other about it. And would you pray for me? I'm trying to wrestle with what this would look like here, here, here. Okay, so illustration here. Unless you're living under a rock, you know that Queen Elizabeth II passed away recently, September 8th, after her reign of 70 years. So she's the longest-serving monarch in British history. On her 21st birthday, she died at 96, I think. Is that right? So this was quite a while ago. On her 21st birthday, she said, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. Okay, maybe that's just like speak. You know, you're supposed to say that kind of thing. But actually I've read several testimonies of the sincerity of Queen Elizabeth's faith recently and it seems that there's lots of evidence for how she lived this, okay? So she chose the word service, not, you know, um, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to leading you well, it's to your service. Again, you could say, well, she's just a figurehead and the real power's invested in the prime minister and the parliament and blah, 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 blah. Okay, I know. But she still had a significant role in British life and really did live a life of service. So I read this one tribute by Carl Lafferton. I don't know if you guys remember, if you were here, if you've been here for a little while, we had a book called Original Jesus that we gave out one year, um, you know, good opportunity to just share the gospel with people. He wrote that book. He's the executive vice president of publishing at the Good Book Company in the UK. So he's British, okay. And it's titled, Thank You, Your Majesty. And here's the relevant portion I wanted to share. So in her 70-year reign, he writes, her majesty only wrote one foreword to a book. The book was published by the Bible Society for her 90th birthday celebration in 2016. And you know what the title of the book was? the servant queen and the king she serves. Though she, he goes on, though she was herself a queen, her majesty always knew she had a sovereign and that he loved her, died for her, had forgiven her and now called her to live a life of loving service in response. She may have been a queen, But she saw herself first and foremost as the subject of the king. In that book, I think, she wrote this. Billions of people follow Christ's teaching and find in him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them. In 2012, she reminded us that this is the time of year when we remember that God sent his only son to serve, not to be served. Those were her words. I mean, obviously quoting... Mark ten forty-five. 45. She followed that example. In our era, when duty has fallen out of fashion and being true to yourself has become the lodestar for a generation, she marched resolutely to a different beat. Hers was a life of service, not self-actualization. Her majesty met millions of people. I'm still reading Carl Aferton. Um But in all the footage we'll watch on loop over the coming days, notice she always gave her attention to the person in front of her. She never seemed in a hurry to move past him or her. It didn't seem to matter to her whether the person to whom she was speaking was a president or a pauper. She could have enjoyed the wealth and status her position gave her. Instead, she showed us a life of dutiful service in the interest of others, one that treats each person with dignity regardless of status. In that, she gave us a glimpse of the one who left the riches of heaven and made himself nothing, being born in the form of a servant and giving all he had to serve his people. Christian ambition. Now, it's fairly easy to trace the outline of what Jesus has said thus far. But when you get to 36 to 50, it's a little harder to see how it all fits together. Okay, so after a cursory reading, you might wonder, like, is this related at all? Is this kind of like a spiritual junk drawer in, you know, Mark's gospel, you know, filled with sayings he didn't know quite where. I mean, these are important, but I'm not sure where to put them. I'll just drop them all at the end of chapter 9. Okay, that's not the case, but let's look at it and see how it hangs together. Point number four, the way of the cross. So there are five characteristics of the way of the cross that Jesus lays out. Remember, Jesus is heading to the cross, the way to the cross, and now he's going to explain the way of the cross. What does it look like? The big picture is Christian ambition. Whoever would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, and then this unpacks all of that, okay? So I've titled each of them with a word beginning with R because of how much I love alliteration. (laughs) That's a joke because I usually don't use alliteration, but here you go. Okay, so verses 36 and 37, receiving. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms, and he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is a different point. You've got to pay attention to how Jesus uses this. Different point than unless you become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom. He says that elsewhere. This is about receiving Jesus' children in his name. So here's the point. The disciples were seeking position and power and status and honor. And Jesus is teaching them the way of the cross. Here's the point. There is no one too low or too small for their care service. In that day, children were not viewed with the sentimentality, you know, and, and sometimes kids can be the center of the home in our day. They were actually of the lowest importance and status. So Jesus is granting importance to the unimportant. And he's reshaping their values. So when you receive one such child in the name of Jesus, someone with low status, a lowly believer that doesn't have social standing in our world or whatever, you are receiving Jesus. Does that bring a passage to mind? Parable of sheep and the goats, Matthew 25. We gotta run through this quick, but Jesus talks about when he returns, he's gonna separate the sheep from the goats. And he's gonna, sh- he's gonna um, place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. So receive and serve those lowly brothers and sisters you would naturally or selfishly want to ignore. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The way of the cross is to receive the lowly without partiality knowing that we are ultimately receiving not just that person made in his image and precious with dignity but also the one he represents that one represents if you belong to Jesus then to care for you is to is to honor Jesus it's the lord christ that we're serving so the way of the cross is also one that not only does that receives little ones but also the way of the cross is one that rejoices over the fruitfulness of others. Second characteristic, verses 38 to 40. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. Just for the sake of brevity here, R.T. France certainly says it better than I can. So follow this quote along as I read it. Exorcism has been a prominent feature of the ministry both of Jesus and of his disciples. And from those passages, it would seem it is a special feature of the authority given to the twelve. To find the practice carried out in the name of Jesus by someone unknown to them is therefore a severe blow to the disciples' sense of identity and undermines their special status. Where are their heads? They're all about greatness and our greatness. Somebody else's. they're not following us. Like, stop, stop that. This is our thing. The issue of status, which underlay the teaching of 33 to 37 is therefore still in focus. To make matters worse, this pericope, it's a, that's a big fancy word for this section, um, follows hard on the story of the disciples' failure in exorcism. Remember, they couldn't cast out the demon of that little boy whose father came. So they failed. This guy, unknown, is fruitful. And they're trying to shut him down. To see an outsider apparently succeeding where they, the chosen agents of Jesus, have failed is doubly distressing. So do you see how this fits right into the theme of the section? Instead of self-protective status-seeking, the way of the cross is humble openness and generosity of spirit that rejoices with those who do good work in Jesus' name, even if they're not a part of your church or your denomination or your tribe. So beautiful illustration of this, powerful one, is from Paul's example in Philippians, a little earlier than the passage that Doc Hus read. So Paul's in prison for the gospel, and here's what he writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Don't worry about me. I know know you heard I'm in prison, but I've got some prison ministry going on, so everything's good. It's become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest that I'm in prison for Christ. And most of the brothers, they see him go through this trial and they're actually emboldened to preach without fear. Now look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Maybe that's hard to understand how that could happen. Um, That's another sermon. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's not like, oh, you need to tell those guys to stop giving me a hard time like I'm suffering enough he's like you know what who cares they're taking cheap shots at me but at least they're preaching the gospel of Jesus and I rejoice like that generosity of spirit is humility Christian ambition Paul's ambitions are Christ being proclaimed more people knowing Jesus he's died to everything else now listen that doesn't mean that we just are are generous with false teachers or people who don't follow Jesus, like, hey, go ahead, you know, spread your heresy. No. Paul wrote Galatians, too. And he's like, um, if anybody comes and preaches any supposed gospel other than the one that I've given to you, let them be damned. Anathema. So he's not messing around. The point is, if somebody's doing good work in Jesus' name, I'm going to rejoice. Can, can we rejoice At the fruitfulness of other brothers and sisters? Isn't it easy to be envious? Like, what am I doing wrong? How come they? Like, selfish ambition, Christian ambition. The way of the cross rejoices over any who are fruitful ambassadors of Jesus. The way of the cross, no matter how small the act of love, next, third, characteristic, never goes unnoticed. Verse 41, rewarded. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What's this all about? God sees and will reward the smallest deeds of faith. It's the way of the cross. Like, would any of you view a cup of cold water to someone, a guest, as a heroic act of hospitality? Let me just tell you what I did yesterday. You know, somebody came over and I gave them a glass of water. No, no, but that's the point. It's a very ordinary thing. The smallest deeds of faith matter when they're done in Jesus' name. To those who belong to Christ, they're done to Jesus. They won't go unrewarded. Again, that echoes the sheep and the goats parable, Matthew 25. We need to move on here. Fourth characteristic of the cross is that the followers of Jesus give regard to those, the believers, that they influence. Okay, those that they influence. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown in the sea, drowned. In other words, we've got to have regard for the good of other believers, especially those who are weak and vulnerable. It's the way of the world, it is the way of Cain, wicked Cain, to say, am I my brother's keeper? Like, do I have to like worry about everything I say, whatever, you know, like my rights? And Jesus says, yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. We must look out for the good of others, humbly seeking to build them up, not tear them down or cause them to stumble. It's the way of the cross. So, we must be careful and regard the well-being, the faith of others and how we could impact that. And then lastly, we've got to be ruthless with whatever causes us to sin. Not just when it could cause someone else to sin, but because sin is dangerous to us as well and the stakes couldn't be higher. So, ruthless, last one, verses 43 to 49. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's hyperbole. He doesn't literally want you to cut your hand off because you could just sin with the other one. Um, It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then he quotes Isaiah sixty six twenty four, 24, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is real. It is terrifying. We should be terrified. We should be warned by it and take this seriously. So the point is abundantly clear, very sobering. We must deal ruthlessly with our sin. So think about how comprehensive this is. Our hands, what we do. Our feet, where we go. Our eyes, what we see. And it's intentionally left just open because you've got to think about what that means for your life. If lust is an issue, you know what? It may be better to enter life with a dumb phone than to put your soul at risk. Tracking with me? And then the last line here, again, that, that begs for more application but Jesus leaves it open because it's different for everybody so we've got to take it seriously and say okay what does this look like Lord for me what do I need to be ruthless with what, the stakes aren't, couldn't be higher doesn't mean you earn your salvation by how hard you fight the point is sin kills and I need to be killing sin John Owen or sin will be killing me And then what is that last line for everyone to be salted with fire? Good question. Um, I'm not gonna take long on this, but salt and fire were typically um, things that went along with sacrifices, okay? In the Old Testament, there's a couple different views on this. If it's speaking of believers here only, then it's my life is a living sacrifice, just like fire and salt were part of sacrifice in the Old Testament. So my willingness to give up whatever, full devotion to Jesus, and that fire then is purifying to me. It, it shapes me into the image of Christ. All the dross is burned away. Um, if it's speaking of both believers and unbelievers, then it's the fire of purification for believers and it's the fire of hell for unbelievers. And then speaking of salt, there's this strange line right at the end. Point number five, salty Christians um, at peace. Little play on words there, but anyway. So verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So salt was intended to be a preservative. Also, you know, flavor influence and, and, and so forth. So tie this into the context. To welcome the way of the cross is what keeps us distinct and influential in the ways that Jesus desires in this world. We reject selfish ambition. We embrace Christian ambition and it shapes how we live in all these kinds of ways. And then we will be the salt of the earth. And... We're not going to be arguing about who's the greatest because that's already been revealed. Jesus is the greatest. So we can be at peace with one another and love one another and love the world with the love of Jesus. All right, let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song. Lord Jesus, we thank you for revealing yourself to us and coming and living and dying your amazing patience with us we need you to shape our values we need you to expose where we've been we've just imbibed the values of this world and would you please reshape us into your image and give us christian ambition Help us embrace true greatness and live it out. Show us what is causing us to sin so that we can be ruthless to cut it out and help us to be careful with the blood-bought image bearers around us so that we don't cause them to stumble. So we need your help and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.